We are in week number three of our study through the book of Acts. And uh, I just want to say this for all the mathematicians in the room. You're going, man, this is week three. We're still in chapter one. There's 28 chapters. You weren't kidding when you said we'd be here for a while. (laughs) Okay? I don't think it's going to move this slow throughout the whole series. I really don't. I just think the foundation is really important. We began by discussing this thing called church uh, is, is a word that actually doesn't exist in the scriptures. It's ecclesia, a word that has important meaning and important connotation. That's what we talked about the first week. Ecclesia is a gathering of people around an idea, around a cause. It might be what we would call today a movement. We belong to a movement. And I love that word because movements move. Jesus began a thing, not finished a thing. He began this movement that we're invited to be a part of. And it does involve gathering, but it's gathering for a purpose bigger than just the gathering. We belong to this movement. And this movement is all about Jesus, the death defeater, the one who's crucified and gets back up again. That makes him unlike anything else. He's the cause. And this movement about Jesus is empowered by The Spirit of God. That's where we uh, landed last week. He said, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit that I promised again and again to you. That power is going to come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. And so what we understand is the power and the healing and the goodness of Jesus that we just sang about is not just to be enjoyed. It's not just meant to be absorbed. It's not to make us the better version of ourselves. It's not some glorified supernatural self-help. The power of Jesus is for the proclamation of the gospel. It's so that we would testify to what we've experienced and seen and learned in the person of Jesus. That's his, his purpose behind this movement, is to speak Jesus everywhere that there are ears to hear. In Jerusalem, meaning in your household and in your village, in your circle, what we would say in our community or our city. And in Judea and Samaria, through our broader context, what we might would call our nation, uh, including the people who might be different than you. They might vote different than you or look different than you or have a different educational background or come from a different side of the tracks. They might even believe different than you. But every person in every community in which we have access needs to hear and see Jesus. That's the movement. That's the point of this whole deal. And and that happens in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Grab your Bibles really quick so we can jump in. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And as we say every week, if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today. We're going to talk a lot about this book. And if you leave here not convinced that it's worth taking home with you, then somehow either I dropped the ball or you fell asleep or a mixture of both. Uh, and so we have a tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together and a prayer together before we jump in. And so if that's where you're at on your spiritual journey, then we invite you to join with us this morning as we hold up our Bibles and declare this with some conviction and some passion this morning. Let's go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. 
Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 1. It's page 855 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Acts chapter number 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to read the whole end of the chapter. It's, it's a good bit of ground to cover. It's a longer text than we normally would cover on a Sunday morning. Uh, I promise to move quick if you promise to listen quick. Is that a deal? Yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, we left off at verse number 11 last week. So picking up in verse 12, after they watched Jesus ascend, then the men appeared in dazzling apparel and said, close your mouths, right? Your mouths are hanging up and looking at the sky. Go And so they returned, verse verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. We think this is probably the upper room. A lot of special stuff happened in that little piece of real estate um, where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and poor Judas, the son of James, (laughs) right? I'm not that Judas. Like, you know, every time that they introduce for the rest of his life, I'm I'm one of the 12. What's your name? Judas, the other one, right? Like, you know, people were like, whoa, I thought, anyways, um, poor guy. Why, Why didn't he change his name, right? Call me Judd. Anyways. Uh, verse 14, verse 14 is going to be a focal point in a minute. Um, we'll, we'll circle back to it. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Already this movement <laughs> is different than any movement that's ever existed in history. I love that that is intentionally by the spirit of God included in this text. Oh. And if you don't think that's a big deal, praise God, you must not be a sexist. But everybody else was at this time in history. That's a big deal. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Wow. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And this is what he said. This will be the other Big focal point this morning. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning that other Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. It's a really nice way of saying it. Became a guide. Bro's a sellout. We're going to call him a guide. It's very merciful, but it gets worse. Verse 17, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke is going to give us some context here because he's always all about context. That's why the gospel of Luke's longer than the other gospels. The dude likes the details. That's why he's my favorite gospel writer. Now this man, he's talking about the other Judas, acquired a field With the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. The Bible is so cool. Like every young boy is like, that's right. And David chopped off Goliath's head. Don't leave that part out either. Right? Like now, if you, if you know the gospel stories, you're like, no, Judas hung himself. 
But no one would have claimed the body of Judas. There's no family member who would have claimed when you were executed back in those days or if you committed suicide in those days, in a shame-based culture, they disowned you. Well, you've abandoned your family and your faith to follow this crazy person. So we've already shunned you. That person got executed. We shunned you. We found out you betrayed him. You ditched your family and your family heritage and then ended up betraying the guy you ditched us for. I'm telling you, this, this guy, his body would not have been claimed. And not to be any more gruesome than the text already is, but when a deceased body is untreated for a lengthy amount of time, it swells to the point that it would indeed burst or fall from wherever he was hung and hit the ground and then burst. This is not a contradiction. This is Luke giving more detail. He was a physician. He's giving us medical context. This is not the Bible contradicting itself. Verse 19, he came, that piece of dirt that was purchased with the money that Judas betrayed, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood, blood money. The field was bought with blood money. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp, his territory, his field, become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. That had to be fulfilled. And that's from uh, Psalm 69. And let another take his office. That's from Psalm 109. Those had to be fulfilled. That's what Peter's explaining to them. So verse 21. So one of the men who've accompanied, accompanied us. During all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men who've, who've seen it all, who've, who've walked this road with us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In their mind, Jesus picked 12 as Jewish men. That made a lot of sense. That this, this body of followers representing the 12 tribes. So, of course, we need to 12 now that Judas is burst. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that was very sensitive. Uh, they put forward two, verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Apparently he had name issues. I don't know why he had three names. And then Matthias. Okay, we can remember Matthias. That's just one name. They prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias because he had an easier name to remember instead of three of them. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So we're going to jump in and cover some more of this foundational territory this morning. The first thing I want us to do is circle back to verse number 14. These all with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. The bad thing about being in church my whole life is I've heard all of the bad pastor jokes slash dad jokes, right? They were all in one accord because they were in a Japanese sedan, you know, ha ha ha. So it's so bad. It's terrible, right? But this in one accord is actually a really important word. And it is a word that is heavy on my heart this morning. In the last two years, I have watched the body of Christ in this nation become so divided over unimportant things. 
not unimportant as in they don't matter. They just don't deserve our passion. This word accord, in, in one accord rather, this phrase literally means same passion. Some translations don't say one accord. They say having the same mind. But even that, I feel like, doesn't paint a good picture for us because sometimes we can agree mentally and not be all that passionate about it, right? But, but this says, no, 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 we have the same passion, singular. And, and, and it's normal that we have a lot of things that we're passionate about, okay? I, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff. I, I love sports. You guys know that. Like, I, I love college football, and, and I, I, I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about college basketball, too. I'm passionate about food. Like I'm telling you, Leslie Bergeron takes me to the coolest places to eat. I just use our friendship because he has the coolest little foodie spots. I'm like, how are you this cool that you know all these spots? I'm passionate about plenty of stuff. I'm passionate about our economy. I want my children to grow up in a stable world. I'm passionate about politics. I want to see things be healthy and regulated. And I want the government to stay out of my faith and my face. I'm passionate about that. But all of those passions are 59th tier compared to my passion for the person of Jesus Christ. He's my everything. You can have it all. He's my passion. These men and women gathered in this room shared the same passion. The resurrected Christ is everything. And what I've watched tear apart the American church in the last two years are passions that don't deserve a divisive seat at the table. The fact that there are families whose relationships have been fractured over our uneducated opinions about a vaccine. The fact that people who worship Jesus together are no longer friends because they weren't pro-Trump enough or anti-Trump enough. God forgive us. The problem in the church today is not that we all need to agree on the lesser passions. Have your view. It's no, I don't care. I literally do not care. Elephant, donkey, none of the above. Whatever, dude. Where are you at with Jesus? That's it. You can have it all. You Cowboys fans, y'all are a sight to behold. But you do you. Right on. I think Jerry's the devil. But you cheer for them as much as you want to, man. That's not a passion that's going to change our relationship. And, and it's interesting. In the last two years, I believe we've had people drift from our ecclesia. Because we were too conservative with COVID or not conservative enough with COVID. We've had people drift from our ecclesia because I didn't worship Donald Trump. Or because I said defensive things about things he said. And I'm just here to tell you this morning. There's only one hill I'm willing to die on. It's Jesus. He's everything. 
And when he's our passion, that unites us in a way that no firestorm around us can possibly pull us apart. No lesser passions can divide a united church in Jesus. Amen. They are gathered in a room with an impossible task. Take my story to the end of the earth. We don't have a globe. They literally did not know where the end of the earth was. Actually. (laughs) They didn't have an airplane, a GPS, no printing press, an impossible task. But they were united in this. Jesus was dead and he got back up and that changes everything. (laughs) Same passion. Quickly, that same passion, notice, led them to prayer. We talked a little bit about this last week, um, but I want to park here for just a second. The instructions of Jesus to wait. For the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait. So all we've been doing is wait. So if you're new to the Bible, here's a 30-second human history 101. You ready? God created the heavens and the earth. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man rejected God. Fell. Everything beautiful and harmonious was broken. But in that fallenness, there's a whisper of promise that one was coming who would bruise the head, crush the head of the, de- of the deceiver, of the deceptor. That crushing would bruise the heel of the one coming, but it would crush his head. And then they waited. And waited, and waited, and waited for thousands of years, sometimes through centuries of silence, waited. And then after four centuries of waiting in in silence, all of a sudden, almost daily, we're hearing messengers from the Lord make announcements. He's coming. It's time. Here we go. And the angels declare to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's here. And then silence again for three decades. And then all of a sudden at a wedding feast from the nod of his mother, Jesus uh, flips on the spotlight and goes, I'm finally here. Three to three and a half years of his ministry and his teaching, he's executed. We've waited all, we've waited for thousands of years and he's dead. We Because we live this side of the resurrection can't possibly understand those three days of confusion. We've waited so long and he's dead. What? And then he gets up. (laughs) And says, what I want you to do is wait some more. (laughs) What? My, my oldest son has a, a routine in basketball. 
Uh, I, I told you, sports is a passion of mine. And if you don't play basketball, I'll just tell you this. Every coach teaches a young player to find a routine at the foul line. When you're shooting free throws, you should do the exact same thing every time so that a free throw is not something you're thinking about. It should be muscle memory. You should have the exact same routine. And you should figure that out when you're really young. Garrett has a routine. It takes seven hours to do. <laughs> and if, if, you, if you come to a high school basketball game, what you'll see is one ref down underneath the goal will give a ball to the, bounce the ball to the, the kid at the free throw line. Then there's another ref standing off to the side and he's, he's doing this. He's counting. 10, 1,001, and most players get to two, three, right? But Garrett, who tends to have an impulsive personality, has said, man, when I just rush through this, it's, it's not as good for me. I'm going to slow down. Dribble, 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 spin, 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 dribble and bend, dribble and bend. And then he takes this really deep yoga breath. True story. I'm a hollow reed. My stress flows through me. I don't know what he's doing, but there's a conversation happening. And I've gotten to where I watch the ref. As a matter of fact, at the Christmas tournament a couple weeks ago, this dude was on like nine and a half and was like. Like I could see on this ref's face, I've never had to actually call 10 seconds on a player before. I'm having fixing out of the call. He like slows down. He's like nine. And there's this thing inside of me that's going, shoot it! For the love of mercy! But he has a better free throw shooting percentage than I did when I was in high school. There's actually a great benefit in slowing down. I think we're in such a rush to do and he's saying, you need to wait for the power. And when God's people actually trust the manifest power of God enough to pray and seek it, that's when lives are changed. That's when the world gets turned upside down. It was not them. It talks about these people turned the world upside down. No, they didn't. The thing they were waiting for did. Just did that through them. And what we see is that praying precedes doing. If we really trust the power of God, there's no such thing as a wasted prayer. If we really have faith that God hears and he cares and he responds. We're waiting on that power. I wanted so badly to actually skip to chapter 2. I wasn't even going to preach this this text this morning. I was going to kind of rush through it. And literally in that struggle of slowing down and waiting on the Lord and seeing, wow, there's really important foundational stuff here. We're in such a rush. We're in such a hurry. Wait on the power of the Lord. Wow, it is really late. i got to speed up. Verse number 16. Holy cow. We have a long way to go. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. I want you to see. From the very beginning, this thing called ecclesia has been grounded 
on the authority of the word of God. There is such a battle in our culture today against the authority of God's word. I, I've been in almost a bit of a, like this existential identity crisis the last few months about what is the next chapter of ministry going to look like for us? Like every day I feel like we're becoming more of these wacko dinosaurs who actually believe what God said is true. Among the church community. I'm not talking about people who don't claim to follow Jesus. I'm talking about people who are like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I just don't care what Jesus says about anything, especially my sexual ethics. If we're going to take a stand on the authority of the word of God, we better wait on the power of God because we're in for it. I want you to notice, look back at verse number one. I told you the first week that we were going to circle back. Luke is writing to Theophilus. He said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began. We said that word began is so important. He didn't do. He started and it's still going. All that Jesus began to do and teach. We have a culture today who likes a lot of what Jesus did. They just reject what he taught. Jesus cared for the exile, the outcast. Oh, we like that. Jesus fed hungry people. Jesus would give a cup of cold water. Jesus encouraged to care for the hurting. Jesus gave honor and dignity to women and, and people who were looked down upon. He spoke to slaves as though they were people. He did all. We love what he did. We just don't like what he said. And you can't follow Jesus if you don't accept both. You have a caricatured, self-centered version of who Jesus actually is. The work he began is not just his works. It is also his word. Amen. Amen. Whether it fits with the times, whether it goes over well, Jesus wasn't actually put to death for what he did. He did some things that offended some people because he always seemed to wait till the Sabbath to do the coolest stuff. Like Jesus, he could have done that Friday. Like dude's hand was withered yesterday too. So he did do some stuff, but not enough to put himself to death. It's what he said. He claimed to be God. It's what he said. He spoke with authority about ethics. It's the words of Jesus that cost him his life. And it's the words of Jesus that demand the people of God to seek the power of God, to stand up with some courage in the midst of a day where it couldn't be less trendy. As a matter of fact, last week, some research was was released, uh, some research was published, a survey by the American Bible Society. Real quick, I, man, I gotta hurry. 77% of Americans surveyed said they believe that America is in a moral decline. 70, 77% of Americans don't agree on anything anymore. That was interesting. 77% said they believe that America is on a moral decline. Count me in the 77%. 80% of them said they believe that the Bible is a sacred book. Now, I'll tell you, the survey didn't do a great job defining sacred. So sacred might just mean like it's kind of important. <laughs> they, they did not interpret sacred well in the survey. But nonetheless, I was shocked that 80% of Americans would allow the word sacred to be attached to the scriptures. 
88% of Americans said they own a Bible in their house. That shocked me. 57% of Americans said they read the Bible four times a year or less. <laughs> okay, so we all think we're going to hell in a handbasket. I don't even know what that phrase means. But the Bible's good and I got one. I just don't read it. Like, that's our own admission as a culture. Man, we're going a bad direction, but this book's sacred. But I'm probably not going to read it. Because we don't like what he says. It confronts our fleshly desires. Let, let me give... Are you all cool? The Cowboys ain't playing. Like, you, you got nowhere to go. Can, can I please have some liberty this morning? I want to talk about a historical view really, really quick. We talked about the historical view of the word church a couple weeks ago. I want to very quickly talk about a historical view of truth. How do we find truth? How do we know what truth is? And so this timeline represents the book of Acts. That's the cross. Jesus was just crucified and risen again to today. We got steeples and stuff, right? This is the entire timeline of the church, right? And I want you to hang with me here. This is just some of my thoughts, right? But historically, what you find is for most of the life cycle of the thing called church, we found truth three ways in this order. Number one, scripture. Number one. Number two, tradition. We're not going to be arrogant enough to interpret the scripture based on our own opinion. We're going to look at what did the early church interpret that scripture to be. And then reason. Does that make sense? As a person filled with the Holy Spirit, when I look at tradition and how they interpreted Scripture, does that make sense? Scripture, tradition, and reason. You with me? This is really important. We're going somewhere important. You students have already seen this. I did this back in September uh, at school. And then the church began to get a COVID body. It got bloated in the middle. Tradition all of a sudden became incredibly important as we went from ecclesia to institution. You with me? God raises up these men and women of courageous faith and of supernatural love for the scriptures in the 1600s. We call them the great reformers. And they rise up and say, no, scripture belongs in its prominent place. And they did what this lovely thing called the church has done for her whole life. They overcorrected. That's what we tend to do and we sense error. And they said, forget tradition altogether. Truth is defined with scripture. And does that make sense to me? I don't care what those institutional jokers think about this. That's what came out of the Reformation. And that was really the heart of truth for almost 400 years. The thing called Ecclesia continued to restore scripture to her proper place. And let's think this through. Does this make sense? Fast forward to the 1900s. We've come through the age of enlightenment, the industrial age. We're really self-confident now. And we're smarter than we've ever been. The information age is just about to dawn upon us. Maybe scripture's a little too outdated for us. Let's just reason about truth. If it makes sense to me, and I can explain it, that's good enough. And scripture was crossed off the list. We enter into the 1900s where reason now is the dominating 
And even in churches, we've got denominations saying, I know that's what the scriptures say. And that's how the church has always interpreted that scripture. But when I think it through, it just doesn't seem enlightened. Right? Okay. Fast forward to, that's what we would call the modern church. Now we live in the postmodern church. We come to today. Where for the first time in the history of the church, scripture is no longer enough. And tradition doesn't matter. And even your reasoning is irrelevant to me. There's only one thing that defines truth. It's not scripture. It's not reason. It's not tradition. It's me. It's self. Specifically, what do I feel? And what have I experienced in my life? Literally the foundation for this thing everybody's talking about called critical theory is that my truth is defined by my feelings and my experiences. Period. It's why I have my truth. Self is now the standard. And when I think about my worst days, to put myself on that pedestal to define truth is terrifying. I just don't trust me that much. And the reason we're going back here to the beginning of the story of this thing called church, I want you to notice before the visible church becomes visible, we see that this core people says we must come back to the scriptures. We must come back to the word of God. Verse 16, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, period. But what will people think? I don't know. Obviously, they weren't having a discussion about tradition then (laughs) because there was no day before. No. Does this align with God's standard of truth? Period. And what we're desperate for today is some men and women and some moms and dads and some students full of the courageous power of the Holy Spirit to say, I don't care what I think and I don't care what I feel and I don't care if everybody agrees with me and I don't care if it's trendy and I don't care if it's cool and I don't care if it seems like I'm on point. I want to know what God says and that's enough. It's not about me. Scripture must become the foundation. And again, not in an arrogant way. I believe tradition matters. I believe asking the question, how has this been interpreted throughout the history of the church matters. That we would become students again. And does it make sense? You're full of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Scripture, tradition, and reason. So verse 16 here, Peter says, brothers, it had to be fulfilled. What the Holy Spirit spoke... By the mouth of David. So I'm confused. Was it the Holy Spirit or was it David? In Psalm 69 and 109. Was it the Holy Spirit or was it David? And Peter's answer. Yes. This matters, y'all. This really, really matters. We believe this book was not a human concoction. Was not man's ideas. As a matter of fact, Peter, a couple decades down the road, would write 
a letter, Second Peter, and he would explain his view of this prophet, uh, process. Second Peter chapter one, verse 21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This wasn't our idea. But men spoke from God as they were, I love this, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The words were carried by the Holy Spirit of God in their entirety. That's what we believe this book is. And praise God that there's a remnant of faithful churches in the Metroplex who believe this too. I don't pretend like we're this rare, courageous little minority here. But this idea... The verbal plenary inspiration of scripture is under attack in the church today. And I don't want to rush past this part of the text because if we don't start right, we ain't going to end up right. We need to get back to the book. All right, real quick. Here's how I believe we engage with the scriptures. Give me like five-ish more minutes. Here's how I believe we engage in the scriptures. I shared this with our students back in September. I want to share it with you this morning. Super fast. How do we absorb the truth of God's word? How do we interact with God's word? Number one, search the book. Search it. That is, read it. Read what it says. Actually, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to read the scriptures. I believe it's implied that we would read it because we can't do what it does tell us to do if we have not read it. So we shouldn't actually have to start with point one here, except that 50% of Americans are like, I believe this sacred book and I don't read it, right? So we begin by reading it, but we don't just read it. We sit in it. I was going to put soak in it. Um, that, that is what we call meditate. The most frequently used uh, idea of how we are supposed to interact with God's word in the scriptures is to meditate. It means to think on it. You've heard me say this before. It's to marinate. You can buy a cheap clearance cut of meat, but if you marinate that sucker right before you put it on the grill, it's going to be good, right? And what we need to do is not go, I read my three verses today, I'm fine. Think on it. Sit in it. Uh, A lot of believers um, believe that the goal is to get through the Bible as quick as I can. I'm reading the Bible in one year. And I think that's an awesome thing. I do it every year. I think it's a glorious thing. I think we probably lose credibility with the culture when they're like, hey, have you ever read your holy book that you said you're willing to die for? And we're like, parts of it. So I think it's good to read it. But I think it's healthier to read 10 words that you think about than to read 10 chapters that you forget. I got to speed up. Search it, sit in it, study it. We live in the most incredible moment in history where there are more tools available to us than any generation that's ever lived to help us understand the confusing parts of the Bible. We have an incredible opportunity to read of the history. You, you can literally read every word St. Augustine ever wrote online for free today. That's incredible. You can find every word Martin Luther and John Calvin ever wrote online for free. We live in this an amazing moment in history, and we don't know what we believe. Search it, sit in it, study it, and then store it. Hide God's word in our hearts. That is to memorize it. When the Holy Spirit makes that word come alive, it's probably not just for that day. It's probably something you're going to need to come back to. 
the, the, the habit of memorizing God's word is the best thing Temple Christian School does. But that's not just for kids, y'all. But if we search it and sit in it and study it and store it and don't submit to it, we don't understand the point. <laughs> Jesus said, he who hears these words of mine and does them will be saved. The point is to obey, which is why his teachings are so out of style. Because we know that's where it's hidden. But it doesn't end there. This whole idea of being his witness is that he's called us to share it. That truth that the Holy Spirit spoke to you might not be just for you. It might be for somebody else that he's in a place in your orbit that day. As you're soaking in it, he might just bring a coworker who needs to hear the word of God. He's called us to pass it on, to share it. I've got to keep moving real quick here. I believe this is how life change happens right here. Temple exists to guide people to life change in Jesus Christ. If temple existed only to guide people to life change, that would be religious behavior modification. But we want to guide people to life change in Jesus Christ which is way more than behavior modification. It's transformation. That's what happens in the power of God's word. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Let's let's scoot down to this. Um, We're going to see that this idea of seeking God's power and proclaiming God's word becomes foundational for everything that the church would become. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 6, as the church is growing and thriving, Ecclesia is becoming visible. The leaders say, I need some help. And it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. When I was hired here at this church... I was given a rather lengthy job description, and I'm grateful for most of it, like 90% of it. But I really have a very brief job description from the call of God on my life as a shepherd to devote myself to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the rest of all that stuff, we're supposed to be doing together. One of the reasons that pastors are blowing up and jumping ship is because prayer and the ministry of the word is the afterthought instead of mission. I just read this morning another article of another church in utter crisis where a pastor has brought reproach on the name of Jesus with his behavior. And the only reason that that's not my name in that article today is only the mercies of God. I have a duty to love you well by keeping, seeking the presence of God in in his power and the centrality of the scriptures at the center of my calling. I can't do that if we're not in this together. The outsourcing of the ministry of Ecclesia to the paid professionals is going to be the death nail of the American church. So here's my prayer right before those 400 years of silence 
prophet Zechariah heard these words from God himself. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Church, the only hope for us to see anything transformational among us is his word proclaimed in his power through us. In our homes, in our city, in our nation, and in Nigeria in all the world. In your seat today was a card. I'd ask you to, to grab that and look at that. If, if you're worshiping with us online, you can go to templebaptistchurch.net slash speakjesus. We're not asking you to fill this card out today. We, we don't want you to turn this card in. We're going to be asking for these cards in a few weeks. The reason we're giving this to you today is we're asking you as a household to pray, to wait, to seek God and ask him what he would have you do for the next 12 months in helping the name Jesus to be spoken in cultural context all around the world. So please take that and pray over that. We'll collect those in a couple weeks. Have conversations about it. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come. But we just believe that the hope for planet Earth is the word of God proclaimed in the power of God. Amen? Can we agree on that? Here's why that matters. I'm more passionate about that than anything else in the universe. That the word of God will be proclaimed in the power of God is the uniting passion. It's the thing that brings us together. Even when we disagree on lesser passions, let's agree on this. The word of God proclaimed in the power of God is the hope of the world. The word of God proclaimed in the power of God is the hope of the world. 